Hello and welcome everybody, this is Dr. Tully for History 256, and today we're going to be talking about the domestic side of World War I, um, primarily in terms of progressive reform. When you have the boosters for World War I, you know, when you have the United States get into World War I, there's a lot of justification of getting in saying, hey, we're going to do something bigger, we're going to use this war as a catalyst to make the entire society better, to make the country better, to make it domestically better. And it very much gets linked early on to a lot of progressive reformers. Now, is it long-term progressive reform? Well, we'll get into that. It was mainly people using it as justification. But still, it's very much within the progressive moment, which we've been talking about quite a while in this class. Now, just to remind you, if you go over one slide, you'll see the four major goals of progressive reformers. If you remember them, we talked about it a couple classes ago. Aid victims of the new society to promote democracy, bring order and efficiency to government and business, and finally, to impose morality. Um, now, what do they do to aid victims of the new society? Um, not too much in World War I. I I'm not going to lie. There's not that much for World War I. Now, however, for pr promoting democracy, yes, something very big comes out right after World War I. That is <coughs> giving women the right to vote. Uh, women were given the right to vote. Um, well, the, the, the amendment passes in 1919, fully ratified by the states in 1920. But even during World War I, you have more of a push, more states pushing for this idea that we are going to give women the right to vote. This has been going on for a while, particularly in western states like Wyoming, but this starts coming over to the west, uh, sorry, to the east, more of this time period. Now, there's two main arguments that people say to give women the right to vote in this time period, and they're two very effective arguments that they use. Uh, number one is that women are equal to men. Uh, they say that women are equal to men, and since women, men and women are equal, they should have the same right to vote. Um, for those, uh, another one who said that maybe men and women are different, uh, basically it was thought that women might have a different slash special, um, viewpoint or ability when it comes to morality, when it comes to morality or things like the home and family. And basically it can cover the blind spots that men might have in their politics, uh, particularly when it comes to morality. It was believed that women were more moral than men and basically they could be a balance so the country doesn't go completely off kilter. If you can see right now in this picture, you will see some of the suffragettes. You know, President Wilson says it's time to support women's suffrage. Absolutely, this is done in this time period. Uh, very large, um, large movement. You have all the different suffragettes. If you go over one more slide, you'll see them marching in New York. Uh, as you can see, it's definitely during the war because you can see uh, liberty bonds being advertised. Liberty bonds were definitely being advertised for this. And so this idea being, hey, we're going to give women the right to vote. It's done in this time period, and it's something that, uh, you know, is fairly accepted and is a definite boon to the country. Now, to bring order and efficiency to government and business, yes, they do that quite a bit. They do bring order and efficiency. This one actually expands dramatically. Uh, a lot more railroad tracks are moved. A lot more railroad tracks are put over throughout the country. Remember how vital the railroad was? There were still some parts of the country, some rural areas that didn't have railroads yet. Uh, because of the war effort, because of the need to get you know supplies from farms and places to uh, the manufacturing centers, a lot more railroad tr uh, track is laid. A considerable more railroad track is laid in this time period. You also have the government trying to uh, ban different industries together uh, to do it more efficiently. Uh, particularly, uh, some government groups that are going to be like grouping together fuel and food. Uh, the idea being is basically like, hey, we're going to get all of our food together, get all the fuel together. It's going to be best for the troops and best for our soldiers to get this done. 
to get this done, to get this done in this time period. Uh, another one in this in the same vein is the War Industries Board. Uh, the War Industries Board basically takes over uh, certain parts of the industrialization of the war, actually most of the industrialization of the war, makes it more efficient. Uh, it literally takes over companies that were associated with the dis- defense industry. Uh, generally, the things you make in war are not things you make year-round. Uh, you don't make all the time. Uh, for instance, you're not going to need to make that many tanks or guns or uniforms if you're not in time of war. And you also, you may not need other businesses in that time period. So you have a lot of businesses that are normally making one thing, switching over to a different product. Uh, so for instance, uh, you know, let's say your company normally makes cars. Uh, not many people need cars. You're going to start making tanks. You don't make tanks year-round. You just need to make them when you need them. Uh, also, this this make sure certain companies are doing what they're asked. So it's not that just um, a company decides on their own, hey, here's what we're going to make and here's how much of it we're, go- we're going to make. Uh, the government's going to tell you, hey, we need you to make tanks. We need you to make, you know, 300 tanks. Here's the contract. They get uh, the these big government contracts. We'll talk about this more when we get into World War II. Um, government contracts are very good contracts uh, because the government generally pays what they what they say. I mean, the government's the one that pins, prints the money. Uh, they can usually they're usually good for whatever they say. Uh, there's also some rationing that comes into play. If you go over one slide, you will see some of these uh, World War One style uh, propaganda pieces. Uh, don't waste paper. Paper's essential. A pound of paper waste is a pound of fuel wasted. So this idea is like, you know, don't throw it away. Uh, they also have various rules for jobs and things. Uh, if you're a company that gets this type of uh, contract for a government contract, you're, you're supposed to pay your workers a certain wage. But also the workers were not allowed to strike. And also uh, they were very much highly encouraged not to switch jobs. If you go one slide, this is actually one from World War II. <laughs> it's run from World War II. However, I do like the sentiment of it. It's a Walt Disney one. That don't be a job hopper. Stick to your job. This idea being that, you know, if you're a worker, don't try to go where there's better contracts or, or more money. Stay where you are. It's more important for the war effort. If you don't have a job, you can see right there for the American Red Cross, uh, our boys need socks, knit your bit. The idea being that if you're a woman or somebody doesn't have a job, um, Knit, you know, knit, make socks. You could use it for the war effort. It would also help you save money. And this is something that's done pretty well. The main thing I want you to know about this is that output goes way up after this. When we get into the Roaring Twenties and the Great Depression, you need to know that a lot of it is based upon the fact that they're just building a lot more stuff. Uh, Because this is a more streamlined process, because these factories are getting big, fat government contracts that they could use to improve their infrastructure, use to improve their factories... Their ability to make stuff goes up. Uh, By the time we get into the 20s, productivity in the United States almost doubles, which has its own problems, as we're going to talk about uh, next class. Now, the thing that goes up the most is the idea of imposing morality. Uh, Imposing morality goes up the most during World War I. This idea being that the way that people act in public is something that they're going to push very much, and they use the war as an excuse to do that. Uh, A phrase you definitely want to know is, men must live straight to shoot straight. The idea that soldiers need to be like good, clean, decent people, uh, live good lives in order to shoot straight, you know, like be a good soldier, you have to do things. Now, what does this mean in particular? Well, one thing that they don't care for is red light districts and prostitution. Um, how do I say this politely? Um, as long as we've had soldiers, like not just in America, but in like human history, um, 
there have been ladies who hang around the camps of the soldiers and provide services, shall we say. And basically, the, the fear is the fear is that you know in this time period, uh, these soldiers who might be going to prostitutes near a military base, they'd catch a venereal disease, a VD. That's a, that's the name they used back then for a, for a STD, as VD, venereal disease. Uh, they might be too hungover. They might be like you know, they don't really have too many drugs in this time period, but this type of thing. And so basically, the military starts closing down a lot of these red light districts. Uh, really kills most of the red light districts is the military. Probably the most famous of these red light districts. If you oh wait wait, wait sorry before that we have some fun propaganda. Uh, for instance, look at this one. You defeat you kept fit and defeated the Hun. Uh, the Hun is another word that they used for the uh, Austrian Hungarians and also the Germans as well. This idea being that they are this subhuman person. We'll talk about that later. Uh, now set a high standard for a clean America. Stamp out venereal disease. And the guy's got a bald eagle on his shoulder. If that was real, that bald eagle would tear up his shoulder. Bald eagle claws are no joke, let me tell you. Um, but this idea being that, you know, to be a good soldier, uh, don't mess around with STDs, don't mess around with prostitutes, uh, live clean, you're going to be a better person. Now, as I've mentioned before, the most famous red light district in all of America was Storyville. If you can say that right there, that is um, New Orleans' zone. Uh, it's a, I think it's like a 40-block area. Like, if it's, it's like, it's like, it's like eight streets by five streets. It's this one area in New Orleans where all the prostitutes are, all the red light districts, all the um, all the houses of ill repute. Uh, it is literally bulldozed down by the Navy. Uh, the, the Navy literally, because there's a big port in New Orleans, they're afraid of soldiers and other sailors. It's a big port, uh, port of departure as well. So they don't want you know soldiers before they go over to Europe messing around with these uh, loose women down in Storyville. And catching all sorts of venereal diseases so that, you know, right before they go to war, they can't fight. I actually have some pictures of Storyville in this time period. If you go over one slide, you will see the uh, bars. A lot of times people go to Storyville not even for the women, but just to have a drink. They are claimed to have some of the best bars were in Storyville. Uh, this is where jazz music gets its start. In fact, that's one of the reasons why jazz music is viewed as so uh, dirty during the 1920s is that it's got its start as the music played in various brothels uh, around New Orleans, and then when people left New Orleans, they played that same type of music. Uh, for instance, Louis Armstrong, he was born in Storyville, and his mother worked in this sort of thing sometimes. Now, if you notice in that picture of all the dudes in the bar, there's a cop there. Uh, yes, there, it was a very open secret that this is a red-light district, even though it's theoretically illegal. The cops in New Orleans were... <laughs> They were definitely known for going to get something to drink, maybe listening to some music, and possibly, you know, uh, hanging out with the ladies. If you go over one slide, you will see, oh yeah, there's there's one of these uh, old-timey jazz bands playing in a Storyville brothel. If you go over one slide, they're, they're the ladies of Storyville. As you can tell, they are very um, covered up, shall we say. that That's the thing in this time period. Uh, they didn't necessarily, I mean, they dressed provocatively for the 19-teens, okay? But, like, it's not what we would consider overtly... Um, Uncovered, shall we say? Uh, if you go over one more, there's there's another one of the ladies, just kind of in a more casual moment. I, I don't know why I like this picture. I think I like the dog. The dog's just a fun picture. That, that's a very happy looking dog. Um, Storyville, however, is completely closed. Storyville is completely closed. They literally bulldoze it. The Navy literally comes in and bulldozes all of Storyville under the guise of protecting the soldiers from prostitution and STDs or venereal disease, they say, in the time period. Uh, one that gets even bigger than that is Prohibition. Prohibition really comes into play, even before they pass the amendment for Prohibition. 
even before they make it illegal throughout the entire country, uh, it really gets its push. Uh, the reason it becomes an amendment is mainly because of the war effort. This idea that uh, men, you know, soldiers who drink too much, they might be hungover. If you're hungover, you can't be a good soldier. It bans the manufacture, sale, and transport of alcohol throughout the country. You cannot manufacture it. You cannot sell it. You cannot transport it. Uh, there are some, uh, you know, you notice I didn't say consumption's not illegal. They do allow some alcohol uh, for medical purposes and also for religious rites. So, for instance, if you're Catholic, you can have your communion wine. That's about it. That's about it. And like I said, they really lean upon this idea for uh, soldiers, basically the war effort, to really push uh, prohibition, the amendment, through. Uh, for instance, if you see in that first picture there, will you back me or back booze? Uh, vote yes on prohibition. The idea being that, you know, if you love America, if you love our troops, you're going to hate alcohol. But what if you love alcohol? Well, who are you supporting? Go over one more picture. Uh, you're supporting the Huns. You're supporting all this. Because remember, a lot of uh, beer companies are of German families in the United States. You know, Budweiser is a very German name. Uh, Anheuser-Busch, very German names. That's Budweiser as well. Coors. Uh, pretty much all the beer manufacturers in the United States come from German families. And you can see these these you know these, these hung these hun booze kegs. Uh, they're against progress. They rob women and children. We waste grain. We cause po crime and poverty. We make people poor. You know these are some of the old arguments against alcohol. But now they're linking it to the enemy. Now they're linking it to the world war. And basically this idea that by supporting alcohol, you support your enemies. Uh, one more. I, I have all these. There's a lot of propaganda in this one today, which I just think is fun. Wet or dry. You know if you support alcohol, you're called a wet. You support the fat cat brewer? Look at him. He's wearing his spats. He's got his belly hanging out. Uh, vote wet for my sake. But if you, if, you, if you hate alcohol, if you're dry, you love women and children, look at those poor children and that poor wife. You know, shall the mothers and children be sacrificed to the financial greed of liquor traffic? It's up to you, voter, to decide. Vote dry. This idea that, you know, alcohol is something that, oh, it affects the entire country. It affects everybody. Now, you also have propaganda in this time period, and when I say propaganda, don't automatically think it's bad. Propaganda is just um, advertisements designed to change the way you think. Uh, designed to change the way you think, that's very much part of this whole milieu. And, you know, um, there's one thing that the United States government, uh, particularly the Committee on Public Information, the CPI, was basically to convince the country that going to the war was a good thing. Remember, the, you know, Woodrow Wilson was elected under the promise he kept us out of the war. Uh, most of the country is very isolationist. And so George Creel, the man in charge of the Committee of Public Information, is pretty much charged with convincing Americans' minds through advertisements. You can call it propaganda if you want. I don't mind. Uh, this sort of thing. This sort of thing basically to convince Americans that the war is a good thing. It's a patriotic duty to support it. Now, he does it through some advertisements. He does it through some advertisements, some fairly, uh... For instance, if you go over one slide, you will see Uncle Sam. Very famous ad. I want you from the U.S. Army. It's a World War I ad. This is the first time that America has been portrayed as a male. Um, the idea that um, countries have personifications as a human being, that's something that's done for a while. Uh, up until this point, however, the United States had pretty much been shown as a female by the name of Columbia. But now they're saying that, you know, America is a man, his name is Uncle Sam, he wants you to join the U.S. Army, it's like the country is asking you to come to it. Uh, if you want to see a picture of Columbia, go over one slide. Uh, this is very much a... 
when I say they dehumanize the uh, the enemy, this is definitely one of it. This is a depiction of Columbia. That's the lady. I remember I said that up until up until Uncle Sam, most of the time, the United States, if it was portrayed as a human, was portrayed as a woman by the name of Columbia. Uh, there she is right there. You can tell she is exposed. Um, this monkey person, you know, the, the, the Hun, this mad brute, he's wearing the, uh, the German-style spiked helmet. Destroy this mad brute and list. He's got a club that says culture, the, the German word for culture on it, which means culture in English because English and German share a lot of ancestry. He's got, he's got Kaiser Wilhelm's mustache. And so the idea being that, look, you know, Lady, uh, sorry, Columbia has been molested, if not raped, um, by this monkey person. You have the same sort of thing with the Spanish-American War by depicting the Spanish. And saying that, you know, the, the people we're fighting against are less than human. These Huns are less than human. They're a mad brute, this type of King Kong style. Um, actually, I think this predates, I'm pretty sure this predates King Kong. But this type of, like, this monkey person is, you know, holding on to Lady Liberty, holding on to Columbia, and you need to enlist. Uh, now, how, if you can't enlist, another way you can help it is with war bonds. Uh, basically, the country can raise money through taxes, but if they want to get more money uh, in addition to taxes, you can buy bonds. Remember, wars cost money. Uh, one way that countries raise money during war is to sell bonds to the population. Basically, they can give more money than their taxes. And so basically it's a way to earn money. You know, are you 100% American? Prove it. Buy U.S. government bonds, third liberty loan. Uh, also, this idea of being 100% American really gets pushed in this time period. Uh, this idea of being 100% American, you know, you're no longer an immigrant. You're not a German-American or an Italian-American or an Irish-American. You're 100% American. You love America. You're not really showing affinity towards your old country. Remember, most of the immigrant population, which is a very sizable population of the United States, is of German ancestry. So this idea being you need to prove that you're 100% American, and how do you do it? By war bonds. I've got one slide, another famous ad. Gee, I wish I were a man, I'd join the Navy. Be a man and do it. United States Navy recruiting station. This idea being that, hey, it's appealing to men, but also kind of a little bit of sex appeal that I'd be, you know, that women are going to respect a man in uniform. Uh, another one of Columbia, another one of Columbia, and Uncle Sam together, it's actually. It's up to you to protect the nation's honor and list now. This is from the Associated Motion Picture Advertisers, so basically the movie business is getting involved with this as well. Once again, you see Columbia, she's in a state of un unre uh, undress. Uncle Sam is like pointing at you like, hey, you know, Columbia's honor has been besmirched. You should, you should fight for America. Now, remember, uh, America gets involved in this for a lot of different reasons. It wasn't like the Germans ever directly attacked America. Yes, the U-boats thing happened, but uh, it, that's a bit more complicated as we talked about last class. Now, the United States is not the only country that does propaganda. If you go one slide, you will see some from Great Britain. Uh, the empire needs men. The overseas states answer the call. Help by the young lions. The old lion defies his foes. Uh, the idea being that, you know, Britain is the old lion, and then all the foreign, you know, colonies of Britain, the places that they imperialize, you know, your Indias, your, uh, your Egypts, your all the places. England, England conquered a lot of places. Uh, they're going to come together, help out the old lion. Uh, as you can see, it kind of looks like Pride Rock from The Lion King, which is kind of fun because it predates it. Uh, the next, uh, don't go over to the next slide yet because I got, I got to set this one up. This is probably the most over-the-top propaganda I've ever seen. It comes from Germany. 
and it is so over the top. It goes, wow. It goes to a place where most propaganda wouldn't go, but you got to hand it to the Germans in World War I. They, they went there. Uh, who's somebody you might say would be a good person to endorse your war? Well, if you go over, you'll see Jesus Christ coming down the cross to go like, how's it going, uh, Germany? We support you. Uh, there's there's Jesus, uh, a giant Jesus, it looks like. Uh, well, maybe it's just a depth thing because of the hill. Anyway, he's hopped down off the cross to give, you know, kind of wave at the Germans, saying he supports them. And I don't know if you know German, but I can read uh, the little German here. Uh, go, soldier, and... Do the great duty. Christ, the great shepherd, watches over his flock. That's not the important part. The most important part is the final two lines. You might recognize this one. Um, o Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. If that sounds familiar, it should. They're using part of the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father as part of their propaganda. <coughs> that is ridiculous. Now, George Creel, if you go over one slide, didn't just do propaganda, didn't just do, like, you know, picture propaganda, didn't just do ads. He also tried to get young people. He actually hired an army, quote-unquote, of public speakers called the Four-Minute Men. And the Four-Minute Men, their whole shtick was they were trained to give a four-minute speech justifying why the U.S. needs to be in the war and why you as a good American should buy war bonds. And they went everywhere with it. Civic associations, churches, uh, a lot of college classrooms. So, for instance... If we were in person, like all of a sudden you'd hear a knock on the door, Dr. Tully, uh, I'm, my name is um, Kevin McDaniel from the uh, Committee of Public Information. Um, may I give a four-minute speech to your class? And it'll be like, yes, I am, because I don't want to be accused of being a bad American. We'll talk about that in a second. And then basically he gives a speech talking about why the war is good and why you need to buy war bonds. Tons of people get involved with this. Uh, Creel does this army of war bonds. If you go over one slide, you're going to see another one of these. This idea that you know war bonds are going to be what finishes a job, gets us into, um, gets us through World War One. Uh, now there is also some big. Uh, there are attempts to regulate speech to get rid of dissent. Uh, for instance, Espionage Act is passed, which is basically you can't provide secrets to the enemy. Uh, but it also said you'd be put in jail for making statements against the war effort. So, you know, if it's like, hey, I'm not for the war, but I'm not for the Germans, I'm just going to, like, keep quiet, or maybe the U.S. shouldn't be involved in the war, you could be arrested for that. Uh, not just that, they literally on passed the Sedition Act, which limits speech even further, uh, makes it illegal to criticize the United States or the U.S. military during this time of war. Um, remember, that is theoretically against the First Amendment, and there are some cases later on after the war's over that clearly shut this down, because it's very much against the First Amendment. You can... You know, you can criticize the United States or the U.S. military, but the idea that to do so in this time period was illegal. Uh, like I said, there's an insistence on 100% Americanism, uh, general hysteria about that. They start renaming things. They start renaming things that, that are viewed as too un-American. So, for instance, you ever heard of a Liberty Hound? Well, that's what they called Dotsons for a while. That's what they called Dotsons for a while. Uh, the term Dotson, if you didn't know, is German. It, it literally means badger dog. Uh, they were bred to, like get badgers. That's why they have little short legs and long bodies so they can run through tunnels. My wife and I actually have a Datsun. It's more my wife's dog because that dog hates me because my wife had a dog before we ever got together and so there we go. The dog hates me. Um, another German thing. You ever had some Liberty Cabbage? That's sauerkraut. Uh, sauerkraut. It was viewed as you know, too German of a name. You know what goes really good with Liberty Cabbage? How about a big old juicy Liberty Steak and some Victory Sausage? 
That's what they called hamburgers and hot dogs. Um, hamburgers, you know, that's from the town of Hamburg in Germany. Uh, Frankfurt is another name for the, the Frankfurter, the, the, the sausage, the hot dog. Uh, this is something that happens in this time period, and it, it, it pretty much ends after the war, but still for a while, this is the idea that, you know, we need to be seen as 100% American in this time period. Now, after the war, I do want to get into this for a little bit before we get into the um, 1920s. There are some reactions after the war. Um, in particular, there is some economic unrest. Uh, even though the rest of the 1920s is an economic high, um, it does begin with a depression, basically based upon all the troops that are coming back to town, coming back to the country. Uh, also, uh, there were limited jobs for these troops because, you know, the war was a really big boon time, but now companies aren't making all this stuff. They don't have these government contracts. They're not making all these things. And also, production has increased so much. With production doubling, uh, there just aren't as many customers, you know, for all this stuff. So there is a depression that happens immediately. The rest of the 1920s is a high before it gets really bad in this time period. Uh, there's also a lot of racial unrest. A lot of racial unrest that comes in this time period. There's a new outbreak of lynchings. Uh, there's, a new ri uh, there's a rise of a new Ku Klux Klan. We'll talk about that in just a second, shall we? Um, no, we'll talk about that right now. Um, okay, so in 1915, a movie came out called The Birth of a Nation which basically glorified the Klan. Uh, remember, after Reconstruction, the Klan was gone. Like, gone, gone. Like, completely gone. Uh, however, after this movie called Birth of a Nation comes out, it makes the Klan look really good, even though it's a history movie. And then on November 25th, 1915, uh, basically, Walter J. Simmons, who was a... He was fairly young when the, world, when the war was going on. I want to say he was, like, very young. I don't think he was ever involved in the original Klan. Like, not at all. Basically, he and some others go to Stone Mountain, Georgia, and they light a cross. Uh, the original Klan never lit crosses. It was more of a thing for Birth of a Nation. Still, it signifies that a new Klan was in play. And this new Klan, you know, it's around during the, the war. Uh, definitely is it's biggest in the 1920s. It's much biggest in the 1920s. Uh, this, this new clan comes in. It doesn't just hate black people. It's, uh, it's very anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic, anti-Jew, uh, calls itself the protectors of womanhood. It's this, you know, basically we, we, we are against giving women the right to vote. We, we support traditional womanhood, this type of thing. Um, much, it, it's, it's, it hates way more people, <laughs> Uh, it claims it's a more pro-white organization, but it's also anti-immigrant, and it's really big on being quote-unquote pro-American, but a certain type of American, a very white American. Now, the original Klan is just in the Democratic Party in the South. This Klan is everywhere. Um, the state it has the most influence in is Indiana, uh, which is not a southern state. The second biggest state it has influence in is New Jersey. It's also fairly big in Texas, but that's a southern state. And it crosses party lines. You have Republicans and Democrats in the Klan in this time period. And it's, it's, they try to market themselves as a more respectable organization. In fact, they literally hire a PR firm to try to re revamp the Klan's image. So one of the things they do to help revamp the Klan's image, go over one slide, you will see at the Texas State Fair, Ku Klux Klan Day on October 24th. Um, you can see Klan fireworks, watch the competitive drills by the Ku Klux Klan and the women of the Klan drill teams, a reception and decoration of the original Klansmen of the 60s, um, the largest class in the history of Klandom, and the last line, you and your friends are invited to attend this day, the most wonderful day of your lives. I, I never thought that Ku Klux Klan day would be the most wonderful day of anybody's lives. That, that sounds terrifying, frankly. 
It gets very big. Like, throughout the 20s, the Klan is a very, 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 very large organization. It's viewed as a um, socially acceptable organization this time period. It's like, oh, no, I'm not, you know, I'm not racist. I just love America. Join the Ku Klux Klan. Um, we don't have any presidents in this time. I mean, we have some who have Klan sympathies in this time. Uh, for instance, uh, Warren G. Harding, who's going to be president uh, in the 1920s. He's never a member of the Klan. He has strong Klan sympathies. However, Harry Truman, who does later become president, he, okay, he goes to a Klan meeting and, and stays for a little while. He never actually pays dues or anything. Uh, he quits whenever he finds out that they're anti-Jewish because his biggest political benefactor is Jewish. So he's like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not cool with that. But he was encouraged to join because it was viewed to help his political prospects because the Klan is very large in the 19-teens and particularly in the 1920s. If you go over one side, you'll see this very large Klan uh, rally that they have, you can see that they're marching unmasked. This idea that, you know, you're going to be a cloud, proud Klansman, march unmasked. If you can't tell what setting that is, go over one more slide, you will see, oh yes, they are definitely in Washington, D.C. Uh, the largest Klan march ever happens in Washington, D.C. during the 1920s. Now, ultimately, it does um, fade after a while in the 1920s. Uh, mainly when some of the older members are like, hey, we need to get more violent. We need to start, uh, you know, lynching folks. And some people are like, oh, we thought we were just a nice, clean organization. Um, once the older members want to get more violent, some people do leave. Also, there are a lot of incidents with um, misappropriation of funds. Um, for instance, in Indiana, where, like, the lieutenant governor of the Klan was, like, a very high member. He wasn't the Grand Cyclops, but he was a very high member of the Klan. Um, it turns out that, like, the leader of the clan, the Grand Cyclops in Indiana, was caught with a 14-year-old girl, and that doesn't really mesh too well with the whole word the defenders of womanhood shtick. So you definitely need to keep that going on. Also, something which is much more um, relevant nowadays, and I don't have a slide about, but I really should, uh, there is a massive flu outbreak that happens uh, right after the war. Like, right after the war, uh, it's called the Spanish flu, which is... Not a real name because it wasn't really from Spain. Um, the Spanish called it like the French flu. It, it, anyway, just the Spanish influenza. It's a very problematic name. Okay, but it was it was a bird flu. It was an avian flu that came about. What was unusual about this flu was that it really affected young, healthy people, like people in their twenties and thirties, former soldiers. A lot more people died of this flu than died in the war. And it's something you've probably heard a lot about considering the whole pandemic thing we're in right now. The fact that, you know, 100 years ago we had pretty much the same thing happening with a uh, bird flu, not, not, a, uh, not a coronavirus. Uh, also, the coronavirus tends to be, have higher mortality rates in people who are older. Uh, this particular flu was really bad for people in their 20s and 30s. Uh, I wish I could talk more about it, but we just don't have the time. But this is something that's very important if you want to understand the 1920s. It's the double whammy of, you know, millions of people dying in the war and then millions more dying in this flu, including people who were never in the war. Now, you also do have some race riots. One particular race riot that happens is in Chicago in 1919. Uh, Chicago is one of the cities that uh, is really impacted by the Great Migration. Hold on, I guess I better explain the Great Migration. So up until this point, most African Americans lived in the South being things like sharecroppers. Now, because of all those big, fat government contracts coming into World War I uh, companies from the government, <clears throat> a lot of uh, companies are looking for employees. And so basically, you know, some, some of the traditional employees, your white men between the ages of 18 and, you know, 25 or 30 or whatever, 
are being, you know, drafted or sent to the military. So now they need more people to serve as workers. So they go to the South. They go to the South. They go to these sharecroppers and say things like, hey, why don't you come to a place like Chicago? Come to a place like Detroit. There is no Jim Crow, which is dubious. Um, there are no laws against segregation, but there's definitely, like, segregation by practice. They say, still, it's a chance for you to, you know, you can own something, you'll get paid better wages, uh, you, you get a little bit more freedom, so why don't you come up to the north? And so this is where you have uh, African Americans going from being a primarily southern rural phenomenon to a more urban phenomenon, not just in the south. Places like Chicago, Detroit, uh, New York have their African American populations explode uh, because of these jobs. Now, after the war is over and some soldiers come back, there is racial unrest that happens in a lot of these areas. And it's mainly exasperated by economic competition, competition for jobs. Uh, African Americans were sought as workers because they tended not to be union, and also they tended to be cheaper. Uh, this drove down the price of labor, which is always a thing in the United States, is upset about uh, lowering the price of labor, but also lowers the price of goods. Now, there's many race riots that happen around here. Probably the one I want you to know about is, not probably, the one I want you to know about is the one in Chicago in 1919. Uh, this starts in Chicago. Chicago, if you don't know, has a massive beach because it's on Lake Michigan. And this beach was segregated, but not like officially segregated. That little political cartoon is a bit of a misnomer. It wasn't like they had literal lines uh, in, the, in the beach. It was just like by practice. Remember, African-Americans hadn't been in Chicago in a large number. Uh, for that long. So basically, you have a black swimmer who is swimming, you know, off, off in Lake Michigan, and he swims over, and he swims into a white area. Now, remember, there are no lines or anything. He swims in a white area. This gets some of the white people mad. They start throwing rocks. Uh, one of them throws a brick, hits him in the head. Uh, the kid drowns. This, in turn, causes a riot that goes throughout the entire, uh, throughout the entire city of Chicago, like I said, it's exasperated mainly by uh, economic competition. Uh, you know, white people being resentful that black people are coming in and taking jobs for working lower wages. Uh, eventually, the National Guard is sent in. As you can see right there, there's National Guard members. Uh, a lot of times, they're former World War I soldiers. They're World War I American soldiers who make it back from Europe, and the first thing they have to do is they have to keep the peace in Chicago, this sort of thing. Many different race riots going on in this time period. Also not helping labor issues is strikes. Uh, during the war, strikes were made illegal because the war was going on. Uh, you couldn't ask for higher wages. Now that the war is over, pretty much everybody wants to start striking. A lot of different uh, workers decide to strike in this time period, and so they start striking because now they can. Now this in turn really results in hysteria. A lot of different hysteria that's going on in this time period, particularly about communists. This is where we have our first what's called the Red Scare. Um, communism has been a boogeyman in the United States for quite a while. I mean, it, as you read in that thing with Samuel Gompers, uh, even before the Soviet Union comes into existence, you know, even before Russia is taken over by the communists, uh, communists and anarchists are seen as boogeyman. They're seen as something to be afraid of. Now, this fear of communism resulted... Uh, and a, a lot of increased oppression against quote-unquote un-American groups. Um, it's a huge campaign, um, you know, only supposed communists. There are very few, like, uppercase C members of the communists that are trying to subvert all this. Uh, eventually the term red or communist comes to encompass anybody uh, with a view against the government. Um, that's something you still see sometimes in America, where basically if, 
you know, your your opposition if they don't like the what what you like, um, that is viewed as communist. Now, why is there fear? Well, four main reasons. Number one, uh, the Russian Revolution. The Russian the Russian Revolution, indeed. Whenever the Bolsheviks take over, they did indeed announce that they were going to encourage worldwide revolution, worldwide revolution, global revolution, encouraging revolutions all over the globe. So that is a fear. That's one fear. Uh, number two, propaganda. There's a lot of propaganda that was put out against communists kind of pushing the country on age, uh, on edge. In addition, uh, the third reason, there's a lot of strikes. Uh, there's a lot of massive strikes, a lot of massive strikes that go on. We talked about why. Um, a lot of the leaders of these strikes were deemed to be communists. That's still something you see nowadays, is this idea that you know unions are somehow tied to being communist or socialist. And the fourth reason, which is the smallest reason, but it is a reason nonetheless, uh, there were some legitimate actions by anarchists and communists. Not too many, uh, some, but still, the fear of it manifested a much larger. Uh, if you go over one slide, you're going to see some of these propaganda, some of this propaganda against communists. Uh, for instance, the first one, you see how these strikes, uh, there's this link between communists and labor, it's the whole slippery slope, like it starts with strikes and walkouts, there is some disorder and riots, then it goes to Bolshevism and murders, finally chaos, and then, oh my gosh, who knows what's going to happen after that. Uh, the next one, this is one of my favorite pieces of propaganda of all time. Uh, when I was in college, this was in my dorm room. Um, I, I just think this picture is so funny, the guy's face. Is your washroom breeding Bolsheviks? Uh, this idea that employees lose respect for a company that fails to provide decent facilities for their comfort. Uh, this is from the Scott Paper Towel Company, like people who make paper towels. Uh, their logic is, hey, if you use, if you have cheap paper towels in the bathroom, uh, employees are going to think that you know you don't care for their for their for their uh, common good. If they don't think they care for you, maybe they'll organize. Uh, maybe they'll they'll turn into like a different labor organization, and then you know ultimately they're going to go to Bolshevism, and the country's gone communist because you cheaped out on your paper towels. But if you Scott paper towels, your workers are going to know that they believe in you. And, you know, you love them, and you're spending money on them. So that's just another funny one. Uh, another political cartoon, uh, basically the idea that, you know, Bolshevism is, is drowning civilization. Uh, this ultimately does manifest, though, in a lot of Im immigration restrictions. A lot of immigration restrictions. Uh, you have the Immigration Act of 1920 that puts quotas uh, from certain countries about the number of people uh, who can come in. The number of people who come in, they said that basically it's becoming less and less American. Uh, however, they still found a way to be racist about it because they found the 1920 census uh, had too many of these bad people. So you need to go to the 19, sorry, the 1890 census when America was the quote unquote right proportion. So basically, you know, let's say if you know 12% of the population comes from Germany, that means 12% of the immigrants can come from Germany. The idea of we're going to increase the size of America, but not the demographics. So you can see right there with that political cartoon, the idea that it's a, it's a person who's a loaded bomb, also a Chinese person because a little head tail thing, uh, even though China's not a communist country this time period. And actually, China's about to become our friend because World War, Chiang Kai-shek's about to come into power in World War II, but that's something for else. But the idea that with these immigration restrictions, we're closing the gate. You also have things like the Palmer Raids. Uh, the Palmer Raids, basically done by the government to raid various labor groups, uh, basically done, done in to see if they are communist or not. And I know it's a little bit turbulent, but that's kind of how the war ends for uh, the home front. The war ends on the front front, being a little bit turbulent. 
like I said, we had a lot of different propaganda in this time period. Uh, most Americans want to return to normality and security, and that's what you're going to get once we get into the 1920s, which we'll be talking about next week. So for that, this is Dr. Telly for History 256 telling you, hey, that's World War One.